oh, sure. It chooses this moment to go live right as I'm about to blow my nose. Uh, of course it does. Okay, two seconds. There's going to be like some, here, have, have polka music for a second. Okay, better now. Now I can breathe through my nose. Hi. So like, I don't know, two, three minutes ago, I just watched the trailer or the little like promo thing for the Frasier revival. I don't know how to tell you this. It really bugs me. Like it really, really bothers me. Um, because Frasier wasn't so much magic in a bottle because it went on forever and a day, but it's really good. And you don't always have to remake old things to try and feel good about it. Like you could tell new stories. We could tell new things. It bothers me. Uh, I like Frasier quite a bit. I, it was very influential on me and my, my television watching and the way I think about story and the way I think about farce. And to see it like redone with just new people because some are dead and some didn't come back. But to see it try, I, I'm worried it'll try too hard. I'm worried it will like, you know, um, not be good. Just something on my mind as I as I sit down today to to do all the things I, I have to do. And it which reminds me, as I sit here with seconds left on my timer, there's still plenty of work day left to do. So thank you so much for being here. Um, should be a good one today. Should be a good pile of recordings. Should be some nice stuff. Uh, I hope it goes well for all of us involved. Shall we do the intro? Let's go. To the intro. All right, just remember what I've taught you. So, yeah, we're here. This is it. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, hoes, flautists, professional liaison, uh, consumers, dancers, belly dancers, bagel lovers, lovers of nice rolls, anyone who's enjoyed a really good sandwich, people who know the value of taking your pants off. Anybody who's ever sat down and really decided, like, I'm done work today, and it's maybe like 10 minutes since you walked in the door. Anybody who's ever tried to juggle multiple projects. Anybody who's realized, oh, God, there's still so many more things to do today. And most importantly, the comrades. Hi. Uh, through no fault of my own, I continue to be John, the guy who's going to help you write better. And this is the Writer's Chat for August the, I want to make sure I get the date right, August the 22nd and it's a hell of a day it is a gorgeous day here i hope wherever you are the weather is tolerable uh there are hurricane storms and disasters abounding 
but I hope wherever you are is comfortable and safe and that you are well. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, if you have no idea what you're doing here, first of all, thank you for being here, whether you're new to this or that you've been here a billion times. Thank you. This is the Writer's Chat. This is a spot and a space where you, writers, I presume you're writers, although you might be creative in any way, shape, or form, creatives and writers can get together and ask all the questions they have about writing and editing and revising and creating and marketing and publishing and really anything to do with the making of art. Uh, I have 13 questions from all different sides, corners, and people across social media, and it will be my pleasure to spend with you an hour or so answering those questions, plus the questions uh, from anybody who's here in chat. Hi, chat. It's really nice to see you. I hope you're doing good. Uh, anybody here, there, or anywhere, uh, feel free to ask questions at any time. Uh, I'm sure more stuff will pop up. And I think with that, uh, since I have no ads or promos this week, although I can strongly recommend that uh, if you haven't already, go listen to today, yesterday and today's episodes of John Helps You Write Better, available wherever you get your pods casted. I think uh, they're, especially the last two have been some of my favorite things I've recorded lately. So put those in your ears after you're done putting me now in your eyes and ears. Just get more of me. It'll be nice for everybody. All right, let's go answer some questions. Question number one. I've decided today that I'm going to self-publish my novel. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Good decision. Where do I start? Well, aside from the decision to start, the next thing you want to do is make sure that the book is done. Uh, it won't do you any good. None of the other decisions we could have are going to matter if the book's not done. It has to be finished. You can't and shouldn't start the publication process if the book isn't at least 80% done. So you need to finish the book. And I don't just mean like finish the first draft. I mean like draft and revise and polish and get the book into the best shape possible before we move forward with the next steps. If you're not sure what those steps are, by all means, feel free to ask. I'm happy to answer as well as going over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com and I'll, you know, you can book a free appointment. I will explain all of what I'm about to explain in greater detail. But the first thing you want to do is finish the manuscript, get it in its best shape. The second thing you want to do after that is you want to get it edited. Why? Uh, why can't you just do it yourself? Because you're not an editor. And even if you were an editor, you would know not to edit your own stuff. You need somebody who's not biased, who's unaware of what you mean, to be really critical enough in order to put together the best finished material that someone who isn't you and doesn't know what you've written can best understand it. Also, uh, editing is a real legit thing. No, I don't think you can do it yourself in the same way that while I'm sure you could cut your own hair or plumb your own house, you probably want to you know, avoid disasters, so you hire someone to do it. So you get an editor, and while that is happening and however long that takes, uh, you also want to secure the services of a cover designer. And it depends on what kind of art style you want. It depends on what kind of time or budget you have. But you can find a cover designer to put together whatever it is you want. Again, you could do it yourself, but again, see previous comment about cutting your hair or plumbing your house or doing your own electrical work or something like that. If you have no training in it, it is possible that you'll get it right, but it is also possible that you will really screw it up. 
So hire an expert whenever possible. Once you get the thing edited and once you get the, a cover on it, you can move forward. You can publish it in any number of ways. Most common is going to be Amazon, but you could use Smashwords or something like that. You could also just lay it out as a very nice PDF and then sell it off your own website. There's no rule that says you have to go to Amazon for it. There's no rule that says Amazon is the only way to sell a book. You could also sell it through other vendors. There's plenty of different ways to do it, but it starts with, because that's what your question was about, it starts with finishing the book. And if you need help finishing the book, like you're on the first draft and you're just, you've decided, okay, I'm going to self-publish this thing down the road, but I don't know how to get to a second draft, or I don't know how to polish this thing so that it's good enough to move forward, go ask for help. What kind of help? Well, probably a writing coach would be hugely instrumental in this, especially if you can find a writing coach who edits material because that way you won't have to go hire someone additional. You can get it all done in sort of a one-stop shopping affair. Uh, just if you're curious, am I one of those people? Yes, yes, I am. So we do, in fact, exist. But most importantly, most importantly what I want to bring up is the idea that you have to finish the book. That's going to be step one. Step two after that is get it edited. Step three is get some feedback, get a cover, and then write some marketing copy. And step four, and finish it. Get it out there. Those are the steps. I've made them sound very simple. They are not. I've made them sound very quick. They are not. But they are the big major steps. Everything else follows thereafter and accordingly. What a great first question. I wish you luck with your book. On we go. Question two. What have your recent failures, uh, your most recent failures taught you? Plenty. Um, I've made a number of failures, uh, especially lately. Not so much today. Today's been an okay day. Haven't totally burned down anything yet. But over the last week or so, I have really learned quite a bit through failure. One, first thing, I have learned that it doesn't do any good if you start a million projects. What matters is the number of ones you finish. And it can be very tempting to, for a number of reasons, it feels good, it's exciting, it's a surge of energy, loads of different brain chemicals and stuff. It can be exciting to start a new thing. People are very supportive of a new thing. But if you don't follow through and you don't stick with it and you're just forever starting a million things, uh, you'll never make the progress you think you could make. So what you're left with is the ability to finish. Now, I used to have a, a fairly strong, fairly good ability to do that. But for any number of reasons, probably mental health, uh, that ability has waned. And I've found myself starting more things than I am finishing things. And over the last week, that kind of caught up with me a little bit and bothers me. Bothered me then, it bothers me now. And I am reminded again of the value of finishing more than I start. Second thing another failure has taught me. Uh, there are going to be people in this world who I want to help, who need the help, who genuinely have questions, who, who genuinely want to do better and I have in my ability and power to help them. But at some point, even given the help, even explaining all the pieces, even making it as you know accessible and fill-in-the-blank friendly as possible, they're still not going to do it. And I used to take that so personally 
that I was doing something wrong, that I was lacking something, that it was my fault these people were afraid, that I didn't do enough to make them excited. I didn't do enough to make them eager. I didn't do enough to make them informed. Uh, I just thought I could kind of go around their fear, go around their anxiety, and somehow they would just drop it and move forward. And um, no, that's not how that works. Uh, I've been struggling with that one for the last couple of days in particular because uh, I've talked to more and more writers and I've seen fewer and fewer people really commit. Like they like the intellectual idea of it's fun to imagine being a writer. They like the intellectual side of it, but the actual practice performance and improvement of it, they're less interested in because it's difficult or it takes time. It's not fast. Uh, it's, you don't get praise every step of the way. It's not very glamorous, that kind of thing. And they don't, they don't do it. They say it's important to them, but they don't do it. And it used to bother me because I used to blame myself for that. If I just tried harder, if I just did something better, then they wouldn't be like that. And I've learned that I can't do that because the fault isn't mine, which is very hard to accept for me. But uh, the fault isn't mine. If you're trying to do a thing, it's on you to do it. You can ask for help, and help should be, in theory, helpful. But uh, it's not my fault if other people won't or can't do a thing for any number of reasons. Just, they just can't. That's on them. So it's on them, and I've been beating myself up somewhat for no reason in order to recognize that, like, oh, it's, it's, it's not my fault, goodwill hunting style. I don't know. I mean, I have other failures, but I'm not sure they're writing related. They're more intimate and personal. So I, I can't really think of a good writer creative lesson there other than emotional vulnerability and courage with yourself to express yourself, to feel your feelings, to sit with them, to, to admit to yourself what it is you want or what it is you want to do or, or anything like that is a level of courage that a lot of people don't believe they have and a, le a level of courage a lot of people don't give themselves a chance to have. That's what I'm thinking about today. There should probably be a podcast episode about that this week. Maybe I'll, I'll redo tomorrow's episode and make it about that. I don't know. We'll find out. But that's a good second question. Thank you so much for asking it. Question number three. If I were going to start a podcast about writing, where should I start? I like this question. Uh, I like this question because there's, there's no one single right answer. It depends on what it is you want to talk about. If you're just you, like a person who is trying to write a book, you can make a podcast about the process of writing. You could also have that space to be a little soapbox for you to talk about whatever the hell you want to talk about when it comes to writing or publishing. If you wanted to bring in a second person and have a conversation, bounce some ideas off of, just chat so that you're not just speaking to yourself alone in a room with a microphone, you could bring a second person in. If you wanted an expert to come in and, and, and you know, you can play second banana and give them a chance to really talk at length and explain things and answer your questions, you could do that too. There's loads of flexibility and loads of opportunity in making something that's going to go out and reach people. But here's where you start, even before we consider bringing on other people or 
you know, figuring out how you're going to get it distributed or what, whatever you're going to, what equipment you even need. What is it you're trying to communicate to other people who are like you? What is it that you want to broadcast? Are you an expert looking to share advice and knowledge? Are you someone who wants to rally other people who are in your position? Maybe they feel discouraged because you feel discouraged a lot. And you're looking for a way to not only boost yourself and cheerlead yourself, but cheerlead other people who are maybe in the same position emotionally, uh, creatively that you are. Are you looking to hype a thing because you like a thing? And, oh, my God, why is nobody talking about this book or this course or this this blog or this whatever, and you want to spotlight it? Are you looking just to have a place to make noise into a microphone? What is it you're trying to broadcast? Figure that out. Start there, and then that'll help inform how best to do it. Like if you're going to do... Uh, a discussion of the major current trends and topics in publishing, it might be helpful to do that with someone with you to sort of bounce off and have a conversation about each of the topics, but you could just as easily, you know, do it yourself. If you were going to talk about your writing journey and you don't necessarily want your problems corrected or you don't want instruction, you just want to talk about what it was like in, you know, five, 20 minute, installments, what it was like to write your first draft, then you can just do that yourself. What you want to say is going to inform the best way of how to say it, which is true for a lot of media creation. And then from there, you determine the gear you need to say the thing in the way you want to say it. It doesn't always have to be, you know, big, giant, fancy, sure microphone, big, giant, fancy headphones, super giant, fancy recording equipment. Um, You want to do something better than a really like crappy sounds like a fast food drive through restaurant microphone, but you can certainly, you know, do well on a budget, even under a hundred dollars. It's totally worth it. Do I think everybody and their mother should do one though? No. In the same way that I don't think every writer needs a newsletter or that every writer needs to blog all the time or something. Uh, you don't always need a podcast. I think podcasting is a particularly outbound and outgoing uh, tool and platform for people. And if you just don't have that in you, if that's just not your thing, you you don't have to force it. You know, you don't have to suddenly become momentarily extroverted just for the sake of like doing the thing you think every other writer is doing. You don't have to have a podcast. It's a good question. It's a very good question. I'm very, very happy with it. Let's see if there are any questions from anyone in chat. Else, we will just keep going. I'm going to get a mouthful of water now. No tea today. Um, I, I, I finished it. I finished the one pot off this morning, and I have not really gotten up out of the chair to really go make a second pot. I will. As soon as I'm done here, I'll go make a second pot and go put my laundry in the washing machine. But no tea at the moment. We're just killing a couple bottles of water. Questions from anybody here? I don't even know who is here. It's not loading. Yeah, this is not giving me a sense of viewership today. I'm just getting a big error message. I think I have to like re-log in the software or something. Questions though? Else we will just keep moving.
All right. On we go. Question four. Are there any genres that publishing is burnt out on the way we're all burnt out on superhero movies? Um, that's a great question. I, I really love this question uh, because I, it makes me stop and think. The publishing is not like film, right? The reason, one of the reasons why we're burnt out on film is because there's no real, there's not always newness. And when we're presented with something new, a lot of people freak out because it's too unexpected. It's too outside the norm. And for a lot of people, this leads to a lot of like complaining about, I don't know, anything from there's politics in my Star Wars to, oh my God, why are there women, women being my movie or it's to this or not enough that, or it's not close to source material. Prose publication doesn't really operate in the same space. It's more critical in some ways in the sense that people are more like, oh my God, you use this phrase, you said this thing, you must therefore mean this idea. And they're much more um, inflexible at times. But um, instead of that causing burnout or frustration, it's just sort of for whatever reason accepted behavior. Like we're just apparently supposed to be okay that there are segments of the traditional publishing space where writers who are trying to be traditionally published or who are trying to grow their traditional publishing platform will, like crabs in a bucket, look for opportunities to pull other people down. Or people will um, write vicious uh, mockery or threats or complaints about book reviewers. And we're just supposed to be okay with this behavior. And on the same, uh, uh, on self-publishing is not relieved of this responsibility because people still think self-publishing is the refuge of like the fool, where if you're self-publishing a book, you're not credible or you're a bad person or you're, you just suck as a writer or something. And again, we just accept that, but we don't, we don't, take it as a sign of like, oh God, will we please stop publishing books in the same way it's, could we please stop telling superhero stories? We're, we're done with that. Let's move forward a little. So I can't say that there are genres publishing is burnt out on because not every publisher is going to operate from the same position. Some publishers are, you know, totally over the moon and looking for all different kinds of hetero romance novels where there are other imprints, other, other publishers who, you know, are not interested at all in looking for new hetero romance. They want to do something else. There's that constant revolving door of popularity and that constant revolving door that compels people to chase trends, unfortunately. And, and that's what keeps them from really developing burnout as an industry as a whole. But if I think a better way to frame this question I think a better way to handle this whole idea is rather than think about it in terms of, well, what are we burnt out on and then I'll do the opposite or do something different, a better way to frame it is here's the story I want to tell. What's the best way I can tell it in a way that is honest to what I want to do but appealing to someone else? I think that approach, I think that vector and that understanding of what you want to say or do is going to get you farther faster maybe than trying to guess what's the popular trendy thing and then trying to write to it. Uh, there are, I, I've talked to too many people lately who get very like frustrated, especially in marketing, 
frustrated about, well, I've tried chasing trends and doing what's popular. And, and then they're still surprised it's not working. Uh, it's because you're not supposed to be doing that. You're supposed to be doing your own thing and standing up for it and giving it a try. So rather than think about burnout, think about how you can tell your best story no matter what it is. Good question, though. On we go to question five. How are there first-time authors getting three and five book deals in this economy? Well, I'm not sure you're going to like my answer, but um, I bet they're white ladies. And the reason I bet they're white ladies is because there's an enormous amount of unspoken white privilege when it comes to book deals, particularly if you're following the assumption that the largest number of readers of books are women and the largest demographic of, of what are called highly productive creators, meaning people who publish more books faster than anybody else is also white women. And that's because publishing is so often dominated by those kinds of people and those kinds of voices. They, they don't really deal in marginalized community. They don't really care about things outside their purview. They don't really, they'll, they'll do a token sort of understanding and appreciation and they'll recognize through buzzwords and jargon, what is or isn't important or trendy or going to, you know, keep them from getting yelled at. But, uh, they, they look for things that make them comfortable and they reward those things heavier rather than take a bolder risk on somebody else. So how are first-time authors getting three and five book deals? They're writing very safe. They're writing very tame. They're not challenging any status quo. They're not really bucking any trends. They're not raising any fuss. They are safe and dull writing authors. I mean, they're probably nice people doing their best, but they've elected to take a path of least resistance. And as a result, and thanks to enormous privilege, sexism, whiteness, supremacy, etc., they're going to get a larger reward than somebody who's hanging out in the margin. And believe me, the margin's pretty wide. Uh, as it, anybody who's not cis- white and presumably straight anybody else gets marginalized that's a that's a pretty wide margin so uh yeah they just get rewarded for average existence they're just sort of there and they're not they're not causing a fuss and it's not hard or scary to market it because they're not doing anything too controversial they're not doing anything too loud or too fast or too much so let's give them the reward that should be due. The people who are willing to push boundaries, say something, have something to say, do something, be something, be different, do different, etc. That's how they're doing it. That's what I think anyway. On we go. Question six. I got this question over the weekend and I didn't, I didn't know what to do about it. Uh, mainly because the pandemic had me thinking that this really wasn't a factor. But here's question six. What can a writer get from a workshop? Now, in the before times, a workshop's primary job was to gather all the writers in one place and facilitate networking between them while offering some education. You could go to panels and learn from people, but primarily you're there to go to the bar in the restaurant afterwards or sit around and meet other people and make some connections that will facilitate hopefully something else down the road. The pandemic of course changed that because big giant gatherings are 
infection vectors. They're, they're huge, terrible things that rightfully so induce a lot of anxiety in people because, hey, there's still a pandemic happening. Wear your mask, wash your hands, please be safe and take care of others the way you would take care of yourself. Um, so the workshops went more virtual, which makes networking a bit more difficult Although you are comfortable, you're hanging out more in your pajamas, you don't have to really leave your house, you can use your own bathroom, that's nice, but at the same time, it lacks that sort of um, exposure, both physically and, and creatively, to get out there in a room of other people and feel that large collective vibe. You can still get a lot of benefit from a workshop, whether that workshop is a simple YouTube video that you watch to cover a topic that can be a workshop. I tend to call my YouTube videos workshops uh, primarily because I want you engaging with the material, thinking about it, taking notes, paying attention, seeing how it applies to your own stuff. So I really put the work in workshop for those. But it can just be a chance to refill your creative tank in some way. That's probably the best way to say it. You want to um, – Get as much from it as you can. So if you've got a workshop where you're going to have panels, where there's going to be a speaker or a presentation, and assuming that presentation isn't like some canned voiceover reading you a script while you stare at slides that say the same thing as your script, as long as it's you know a bunch of people having a personable, intelligent conversation that's doing something of benefit for you, you can still get a lot out of it, but you're going to lose that major networking activity level component that for a lot of people makes a huge difference. Myself included, one of my favorite things to do with conventions wasn't so much to give panels, although I do like talking and giving panels. Uh, my favorite thing to do was hang out and see my friends. I would learn more about what was going on in the world and in the industry and with this and that, hanging out with them, having a salad for lunch. than I did, you know, talking four times a day for four days about character development or something. So you can get a lot of benefit from a workshop. You just have to go into it knowing what you want and understanding that the nature of these things has changed for good and for ill. It's, it's better that we're not all getting the plague and dying, but not so great when it comes down to like, hey, I wanted to connect with people, not stare at them through a monitor. But it is something worth thinking about. All right. On we go while I get another mouthful of water. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? I watched some people come in. Hello, people from chat. How are you? I hope you're doing well. Oh, man. I should have put an ice cube in that. It's like on the warm side of room temperature, not the most satisfying thing. How am I? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh it's been a fine day. There's a nice breeze. I'm answering questions. Things are good. No complaints. Shall we do some questions? Shall we keep moving? I think we should. On we go. Oh, there's a question. Hang on. Are there any good resources you'd recommend to learn more about writing theory? Very basic level overview stuff. Yes. Uh, I'll give you two. How's that? Because it's enough to get you started. Uh, you want to grab the books by a guy named John, J-O-H-N Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Um, I want to say the book is called The Art of Writing. It's an older book. It's about 20 years or so old. 
It might even be older than that. I'm not entirely sure. I've had it forever, it feels like. He does an excellent job breaking down writing theory to some degree. You also want to look for a book called Into the Woods, not the musical. Um, I cannot recall the name of the cover, but I can see the cover in my head. Um, both of those two books will give you some very strong entry-level instruction into a lot of different writing stuff that will allow you then to spin off and go into different directions and get more complicated. You can start looking at narrative design after that, and you can get into like the deeper stuff. But yeah, you can start with Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R, and a book called Into the Woods, which is more about television and five-act structure that way. But it's while it is a different medium, it is the same level of lesson, and both can be very helpful. I would recommend them more than something a bit more salesy and a bit more um, pushy. I would recommend them ahead of something like the story grid, um, mainly because the story grid really wants to tell you how smart it is before it actually gets to theory. I'd start there. That's a great, great question. Uh, and the, the problem with recommending resources, especially at an entry level, is that not every student, I'm going to use student in air quotes, is standardized. Some people um, are coming to it from a very like engineering mechanics kind of view. Like what are, what are the parts and how do they work? Whereas other people are coming at it from a very artistic side in terms of like feel and impression and, and this and that. And it can be hard to reconcile those two things. Um, and at some point, the theory kind of plateaus because ultimately everybody sort of covers character construction or plot construction and dialogue basics or world building. And then you're just sort of done. Like you've covered all the, the theory materials, but you know, there have to be more like you've only read half a dozen books. There's no way on earth you are now an, a master or mistress of writing theory. And the you're not, you're not, uh, it's just that there's a there's a there's a baseline of information, and then a huge ass gap, and there's an unwritten idea, an unspoken rule that you're supposed to gain higher levels of of resource. You're supposed to like learn, uh, sort of on the job as you write, but also learn from interrogating and taking apart other texts. They don't tell you that because. Um, you know, I'm not honestly sure. I know in school we did we we always laughed about it because there was no college professor that would just say, "Go watch TV." But that's really what it amounts to. Go watch television, go read some books, go take things apart. Once you learn the basic tools, the wrenches, the hammers, the screwdrivers, the thises and the chisels and the that's. Once you get the basics down, you can start taking apart anything you start looking at and and gain an understanding of what works and what doesn't. Um if you really want a nice basic level overview, and this is a shameless plug, uh, go try the Patreon, patreon.com slash John helps you write better. It is not always aimed at an entry level, um, but there's a lot of entry level stuff. Like if you, uh, I'll tell you right now, if you're really looking for something that's going to be entry level on character design, the last, what am I on? Eight weeks of Jessica Jones walkthroughs have been fantastic lessons on how to build character. That's a, that's, that's 
my opinion in terms of writing theory, I think I'm, I'm not exactly, you know, on the cutting edge of writing theory anymore, but, uh, I certainly do enjoy teaching it, but I think Gardner's books and I think, um, into the woods will go a long way at getting somebody started. Good stuff. On we go. Question seven. Am I on seven already? I'm going to hang on. You're going to get a graphical thing in a minute. because I'm going to go backwards. Yes, I'm on seven. Question seven. Why do people hate on the passive voice? Um, you'll like this answer. It's because the internet told him it was bad. But fun fact, a lot of people couldn't begin to describe what the passive voice is or isn't, nor could they tell you why it's bad when it's bad and sometimes why it's good when it's good because it's not universally bad. There, there are very, very few universals in writing other than you, know, you write according to the grammar structure of the language in which you are writing. But passive voice is a tool in our toolbox the same way that active voice can be a tool in our toolbox. The hate on the passive voice comes from, one, nobody understanding what it really does. Two, everybody agreeing that the times when it gets used poorly are the times when uh, writers tend to make the most frequent mistake. You know, they, they drag the verb out. They make the sentence feel sluggish. They aren't as clear as they want to be when they're describing something. And all of those things, while not technically passive voice problems, get painted with the passive voice brush because it's easier to say it's a passive problem as opposed to it's a declarative problem or a descriptive problem or I don't fucking know what the sentence says problem. So once people started lumping everything together or many things together under the passive voice umbrella, it just became easier to hate it and say, no, don't be passive. And then it became sort of a catch-all. Yes, passive voice problems do exist. The idea of a verb being less active, less evocative, less clear, and therefore less dynamically sensitive, meaning I can't picture as easily who's doing what to what degree. Um that's a passive voice problem. Everything else is a different kind of problem. Maybe it's a description problem. Maybe it's a vague pronoun problem. Maybe it's just a weak structure problem. Maybe it's just a shitty sentence, but it all gets lumped under passive unfairly and people hate on it because they just want to say it's universally bad. Don't do it as if that's going to help somebody not do it. Like, Hey, don't put your hand on the hot stove is a reasonable near universal experience. But how do you explain what hot is? And the reason why the hot stove and passive voice examples don't work really well together is hot is pretty binary. Yes, there are degrees of hot, but you can blanket all heat under hot and call it a day. You can't do that with passive stuff because sometimes passivity in a verb or passivity in a construction where you've, you've shifted things around and you've got some radial clauses and you've got some commas going on and the verbs hanging out in the back or the middle of the sentence. Sometimes that's okay. Like in dialogue or in first person internal exposition where you're having a character share a thought. But since it's easier and more fun on the internet to make big blanket statements, people hate on the passive voice. That's why. But it's a useful tool. And I hope you've enjoyed waiting for this answer. I have tried to answer like 
60-something percent of this question using passive voice sentences because it was a thing I could have done. But it's not the end of the world. It's just a tool in the toolbox. Use it as needed. Good question, though. Question eight. What's the worst writer behavior you're seeing get popular again? Oh, oh, this is a good one. This is good. I like this. Um, I see a lot of writers doing that thing where they file the serial numbers off something, but they do it poorly. And then they, they don't really develop an original idea. I think that's the worst writer behavior, just in general. A lack of curious creativity, a lack of I've got something to say-ness. And it's just easier to look at what somebody else is doing and template it, copy it. We all go through this. We all ape what we see until we feel encouraged, supported, or brave enough to do our own thing. And a lot of writers never will because they don't get the support. They don't get encouragement. They don't feel they get the right tools or enough tools. So I see, I'm seeing a lot of people right now just talk about their work in like big dramatic ways. Like, oh, my story is... Uh, my story is popular thing plus other popular thing. And then maybe there's a slight twist. Like it's, it's, it's this movie plus this movie, except everyone's wearing a hat as if that little hatness or the new hat detail is somehow enough to individuate material. I think that's the worst behavior I'm seeing get popular again. And the reason why I'm seeing it get popular again is because media culture as a whole is making it popular again to reheat things and, and do over things because, Oh, it worked once. So if we just keep doing it, we'll, you know, it'll be new. And then when they do try something new, they don't push it nearly as hard or they treat it as sort of like, well, there's also this new thing, but you know, it's not as good as the old stuff. There's this primacy for, or this priority, I should say. There's this priority for nostalgia because it, it requires less emotional leverage. I don't have to work so hard to sell you on a thing if you're doing a lot of the heavy lifting by remembering how good it was the first time. And what that leads to is a climate and a culture where writers in particular, particularly susceptible to wanting encouragement and wanting success turn around and go, well, if I want to be successful, like what I see, then I have to not be as original and I have to sort of stay within this box of pre-created ideas, which is the absolute opposite of what you need to do as a writer. If you're going to do anything, say whatever, write whatever book it is, you need to do it in a way that you're comfortable doing and that you're happy with, even if what you are doing puts you out on a limb you'd never gone on before. You don't have to race and rush for originality. Like, don't go out of your way to suddenly make it more complicated or make it super hyper new. It's not about the total amount of newness. It's about the quality of your production. So if we're telling a story we've seen a million times before, like a sports underdog movie or a... Um, Little kid does a scary thing YA story, right? We've seen those a million times. We will see them a billion times more. 
when you're creating those things, create them not because you were really influenced by four other things and you want to pay homage to them. Like, I liked this author, so I'm writing the same way. That's that's just a great way to fail. Like, that's a that's a huge way to, to screw yourself over because it, it doesn't matter if you liked other people's stuff. That's good that you liked other people's stuff, but that's that's not how writing works. The point of writing is for you to write your own thing and for you to reach your level of comfort with what it is you're saying. I understand that it's safe and fun and enjoyable to play with somebody else's toolbox or play in somebody else's space or try to do what they did, but you're, you're not taking enough risks there. You're not being brave. You're not being open enough. You're not being vulnerable enough. You're not being expressive enough. You're just going through another set of motions that habit will always lead to more burnout and frustration because ultimately when you boil everything down and simplify all the thinking, you are trying to be someone and do something that you are not. I want to write like famous author X. Well, you're not famous author X. That doesn't mean you won't be famous. It just means that you, you aren't author X because they're alive, they're dead, they're over here, they're here, whatever. You have to be you. And you have to produce what you want to produce at your best level of skill. And yes, maybe for some people, that high level of skill is not as high as other people's level of skill. And you have to learn to be okay with that. But at the same time, you still have to step out and try your very best your way, not their way. That I think... I think I sort of went in two different directions on that question, but it's worth talking about when it comes to bad writer behavior because it has very little to do with like, not everybody's getting up at six o'clock in the morning and writing for 20 minutes. Like I could give a shit. That really doesn't matter. What matters is how you are aiming and approaching the work you're doing, not the time or the cup of coffee you're drinking when you do the work. No one cares about the pen you're using. Nobody cares about the software you use so long as it exports to a format that is acceptable for other people. Don't, don't make it about the small stuff. Make it about the big thing. Take the risk. Be vulnerable. You'll get farther. On we go. Are there any benefits to long-term coaching? Yes. I'm now going to speak about my business. There are huge benefits to long-term coaching. First and foremost, with me, and I can't say this is true for every coach, but with me, uh, if you're a coaching client, you get edited. So you eliminate the need for an additional editor. You can go get a proofreader. I'll recommend you one. Uh, they will probably listen to this chat as a podcast. Like the, the, One of the larger benefits of long-term coaching is you get edited as we go. That's a huge time saver and financial saver for a lot of people because editing by itself can be and should be expensive. It's a fucking job. But beyond that, long-term coaching is regular, consistent accountability and education. If you want to get better at a thing, having somebody who's always around to help you get better at that thing to push you, to, to explain things to you, to aid you, to give you the tools you need to get better or help explain the tools or the form or whatever so that you can get better, um, this is the best way to do it. We can, we can, in this way, liken it to a trainer at a gym. If you wanted to 
improve your workout, if you wanted to learn finer technique, or if you had a, a goal that you didn't think you could reach by yourself, you could employ the services of someone who, you know, you will see multiple times a week or whatever over a long period of time to get you into or towards whatever goal you had. Long-term coaching gives you accountability. It gives you a goal. It gives you some deadlines. It also gives you, I think most critically, a chance to ask all those questions without feeling embarrassed. It lets you appear foolish and appear stupid or bad or wrong or whatever you call yourself and then get help when you need it. Because uh, as a coach, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to say like, ah, oh, you're fucking all this up. You're terrible. My job is to help you go from wherever you're at to where you want to go. I'm on your side. I want to help you do this. And it's on me to figure out the best tools to help you get there. If I'm offering you tools and it's not working, it's on me to change those tools, not you to bend to my will or produce the thing you think I want. I'm not a gatekeeper. I'm a sidekick. I'm the assistant. I'm, you know, the, the tool guy to aid you in whatever you're doing. Um, I have watched clients, particularly, I have several long-term clients. I have watched them become confident. I have, of course, watched them get published. I have watched them end up on the New York Times bestseller list. I have watched them win awards. I have watched them grow an audience. I've watched them be able to quit day jobs and be able to write full-time. I've also watched them get married, have kids, grow old, uh, discover the value in creativity, do a million billion things with their lives. Like that's, that's fantastic. And I know a lot of that stuff is in no way related to like me coaching them through chapter 12, but I would like to think that some of the confidence those things require stems from them feeling confident about their creativity and the success they get from it. So maybe it did have something to do with coaching some way, kind of, sort of. Long-term coaching is useful for developing all your skills. Short-term coaching, even if it's just one session. Hey, could you take a look at my query letter? Hey, help me with this pitch. Yes, short-term coaching will absolutely help you solve a problem. Long-term coaching, though, not only helps you solve problems, it helps you eliminate things that will be problems down the road. Because let's say you have a really bad habit of using adverbs. If you spend three weeks, let's say three hours in three weeks, going over two or three chapters of what you've written, and every time you write an adverb, or, or nearly every time you've written an adverb, I flag it and say, you don't need this adverb. Uh, you will hopefully use fewer adverbs and therefore improve your writing because you won't have this problem that you were having. Long-term coaching is massively helpful. Not only is it really fun both for me and hopefully for the people who, who do it, but uh, it is massively helpful in growing as a writer, but also growing faster than you could if you were doing it by yourself. I've watched too many people swear up and down that they don't need coaching, but then talk about needing help. Coaching is that help. It'll absolutely make a difference. And if you want some free coaching, like legit, total free, johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com, click the button. There's a free option. Go use it. That's what I think coaching is best for. Helping you do what you want to do. Are there? 
any more questions from anybody in chat while I stick still more water in my face. About an hour ago, I had this amazing lunch. It was fantastic. It was a spicy double veggie burrito. It was amazing. But I am now so incredibly thirsty. I, it wasn't salty. I don't think it was salty, but good grief. I am just pouring water in my face. So while I keep drinking water, are there any questions from anybody here in chat? I think one came in on my phone. Let's see. I answered it already. Okay. Shall we keep moving? Let's keep moving. Question 10. I realize we are flying. Yeah, we're at 52 minutes and I'm almost done. This is, wow, hell of an hour. A power hour, if you will. I work 10 hours a day and when I get home, I want to write but can't. Isn't burnout inevitable? Yes. Just yes. Um, that's not your writing fault. You're not a bad writer. I hope that's clear. I hope you understand that. You're not a good writer if you're able to somehow force yourself to write after working a 10-hour day doing whatever you're doing, whether that's manual labor or office labor or some kind of other exploited by a capitalist kind of labor. Um, you're not bad or wrong for not being able to write. Like, you're tired. It's okay to be tired. What's arguably not okay is passivity about it. Like just sort of accepting that this is how it's got to be and writing will remain a pipe dream because there's going to come a point where you have to, you have to decide. Yes, you do write, you do work 10 hours a day and you've been putting writing off for days, weeks, months, or longer. You do have to decide when you're going to pursue it. You said it was important to you. So why haven't you pursued it? And I don't mean like you haven't spent time daydreaming at your office job about writing that novel because that's daydreaming, which is also fine, but it's not the same as writing. If it's important to you, yes, absolutely, you will make time to write. I'm not saying that you have to, in the course of a 24-hour day, after working 10 of those hours, you have to sit down and write for like six hours. That's unrealistic. But 10 minutes in a week? 10 minutes. I understand that when I talk about, or when people talk to me about wanting to write, they don't mean like five minutes. They mean like, I want an hour. I want two hours. I want to... Do it how I used to do it when I was a kid. I want to sit and write at length. You can't. It's not because you're bad or wrong. It's because you are contributing to a system that does not believe you have the ability or should be encouraged to be creative. You, have a, you are participating in a system that wants to remove creativity and art from things for the sake of profit. They don't, they don't want you to have hobbies. They don't want you to have energy. They want you to be two things. Uh, alive and a competent, quiet, uneducated, under-speaking worker. 
You are a drone. That's what they want. So anytime you want to get on a flight of fancy about your fantasy kingdom or your romance novel or your YA book or your this or your that, you are engaging in an active, active revolution for which I will be eternally proud. But you can't approach it in the same way you approach this day job because you will burn yourself out even faster than you're already probably burnt. Ten minutes. Five minutes. You steal that time where you can. I understand you want more. Let that let that fire, let that desire drive you. But that doesn't mean you're always going to have a chance to do more. I'll give you an analogy. In any prison escape movie, everybody wants to escape the prison. But the disposal of the dirt or the digging of the tunnel can only be accomplished at certain times. And it's not always the same amount of time every time. Sometimes we're only digging five minutes. Sometimes we're digging for an hour. Sometimes we're digging late at night, and other times we're just digging casually on a Tuesday. But at the end of it, no matter what, because we were digging rather than we were consistently always digging the same amount, because we were digging at all, we dig our way out of the prison. Yes, you're already burnt out. I hate to tell you this, but the number of articles you read about how to avoid burnout, um, you're already burnt. They don't want you to recognize that because they don't want you to have to ask any questions. They don't want you to challenge any status quo. They just want you to say, okay, and then move on with your day like some kind of like worker peon. And it sucks, and it's wrong, and the system should be abolished. Absolutely, without a doubt, period. What you need to do as best you can when you can is make an active effort to rebel against this system. And the best way you can rebel short of like, you know, radically overthrowing the capitalist system that we are all enslaved to um, as an individual, you can write and you, you don't want to match the workday line for line. Like I work 10 hours. I have to write 10 hours. No, that's stupid. Just, a little bit here and a little bit there will tunnel us out of this prison to go back to my metaphor. It's okay that you want to write but can't. You're not at fault. You are a victim of a thing greater than you. I am challenging you, though, to do more than just sit there and say, I want to, but I can't. Because if you keep telling yourself that, uh, I believe the kids still say GTFO. Just, we don't need you. You're not doing anything. You, you want to talk about it and not do it? Well, you can go hang out with my family members. You can go hang out with people I used to date. There's loads of human beings on this planet who will talk big and do nothing. If you want to do different than that, though, you're going to have to do it in different ways, which means a little bit here and a little bit there. I understand you want to do it different. I understand you want to do more, but we got to work with what we got. So one step at a time, and not every step is going to be huge. Just take the steps. Tunnel your way out of this prison. I know you're burnt out. I know you need to rest. I hear you. I'm asking you just to push a little bit. Two minutes here, five minutes here, ten minutes here. Tap a note on your phone while you're pooping. Write while you're in the elevator. On your lunch break, when you're sitting in the car cursing your boss, tired and exhausted and can't, you know, looking at the clock, I can't wait for this to be done. Five minutes of writing, five minutes of outlining. 
50 words at a time, 10 words at a time, two words a day. I understand it's not what you think writers, I'm making air quotes, do, but it's what you're going to do because it tunnels us out of the prison, okay? Keep going, don't give up. Tunnel, tunnel, tunnel. It's the only way we're getting out. Question 11. How is it all these writing coaches have always have workshops and things on Facebook? Ooh, ooh, I like this one. All right, so let's talk about some of these coaches with their trainings, that's the word they use, on Facebook. They're not really coaches. They're vendors. They're selling you things. In fact, they're doing so much of that selling, they're not really coaching very much. And that's by design. Now, maybe that's by design because they're not very good at coaching, so they try not to do too much of it because otherwise you'd realize that their advice sucks or that they're inexperienced or that they just aren't very good at teaching. But they also do it because they make a fuck ton of money gulling people, convincing them that the solution to their problem is some expensive thing when most of the time the solution to their problem is something simple like just having a conversation and being told that they're doing okay. Now, I often get a lot of shit from these people because I will tell you that these emperors have no clothes on and they don't like me because uh, if you've watched my video on customer types, uh, I am a skeptic. I am a contrarian. I am a doubter. I am somebody who has a ton of questions and likes to poke things with sticks because I lack self-esteem. I'm a nightmare customer for some people. And particularly for other writing coaches, I am so often enamored with, oh my God, look at the presentation here. I bet that's a $5,000 camera and a $2,000 lens they're using. Holy shit, I bet they rented a studio. They're making so much money. I'm listening to their podcast where they're complaining that they only made $60,000 in a weekend. Well, shit. What am I doing? I'm giving away most of the store for free on a daily basis but at least I can sleep better at night. They have all these workshops and all these trainings and all these things because their job isn't to be a writing coach. Their job is to be somebody who sells canned, reheated writing advice to you. They're vendors. It's just that they're very flashy about it. And maybe just to kind of give you a veneer over the top, a little bit of surface, a little facade, if you will, a facade, as my little brother used to say when we were growing up, um, They'll couch it in writing coaching. Oh, I'll tell you 10 things you need to do if you just, you know, buy my $5,000 video course where I, each of these videos tells you what exactly. Not much. Or maybe it's the same thing three times, three different ways. They have all these things because that's what they're just trying to sell you. A working writing coach, somebody who's in the trenches with their sleeves rolled up, they're not telling you all the time, hey, come on Facebook, I'm giving a free class. They're busy talking to clients. They're busy talking to writers. They're busy creating things to help people succeed. Here is my challenge to them, because I know this will get back to them. You're great at what you do. You have loads of people telling you you're fantastic. I've seen your testimonials. They're delightful. I'm assuming they're all legit. I know for some of you, they're not. You have a marketing person you underpay to fake them up, but that's neither here nor there. You're really good at what you do. If you're so good at it, if you're so super-duper good at it, 
why am I doing this talking to writers and you're over there doing that talking to people who haven't written yet? Come do this. I'll give you my Twitch account password. I will give you my microphone. I'll mail you a microphone. I got a whole drawer full over there. Do this. If you're this good, you shouldn't need to charge that much, right? You shouldn't need to go out of your way, right? Because you're just so good at it, you could undercharge, right? Could you do a freebie? Because I'll give you a client. I will give you a client and go, hey, this person, they're better than me. They'll work for free for you for one hour. What can you get done in an hour? Because I know exactly what I can get done in an hour. I don't do trainings on Facebook. I don't, I barely newsletter correctly. I'm making air quotes. But I'm helping writers. What the fuck are you doing? There's my challenge. Pass that along. I'm sure they're very nice people. Maybe, if they have souls. I don't know. But they're out there making fat bank, reheating the same idea from 2012, and I'm here every week. Are we doing the same thing? It doesn't feel like I'm doing the same thing. They got fucking boats in third houses. I'm wondering, you know, if my client doesn't pay my invoice this week, I'm wondering how I'm going to steal groceries out the grocery store. We are not the same. On we go. Question 12. What's a dream project that you'd make if given a chance? I have a really hard time narrowing this down to one, so I'm going to cheat and give you two. I have uh, a deep fondness for jukebox musicals. Those are musicals that use pop culture music in some way, like Moulin Rouge or Across the Universe um, or that uh, the Springsteen one or the Beatles one, whose names escape me right at this second, or Rock of Ages, although I don't, even though I'm a huge 80s fan, I don't really like Rock of Ages. I think it was poorly crafted. I think the movie could have been put together better. But um, I like jukebox musicals. I like seeing interpretations of, songs and I like musical theater to some degree that way. I have always wanted to do a jukebox musical with the Dave Matthews band discography. I've always wanted to do a Dave Matthews musical, not so much about the band or about him, but just using that music to tell a story. Uh, I have been noodling on that idea since about 2002 uh, I was in college. I was, I was actually, I was just on my way out of college, and I really thought one of my like final projects would be a rough script for this. I don't know if I still even have it somewhere. Um, I would love to give that a try at some point. I know it's a, I know it's far more work than anything else, but I would love to do that if I was given a chance. Second thing I would do. I really want to tell. A, I really want to tell a film noir with Muppets. Like the Muppets. I want to work with the Muppets. And I want to work with the Muppets, but like dramatically, where everybody sort of takes the, the Muppets seriously. Yeah, we'll break the fourth wall. We'll make a couple jokes. But I want to tell like crime fiction with Gonzo. I, I, want, a, I want a Muppet film noir. 
not like a remake, not like a pastiche, not like, you know, a, a, a movie, a clip show that just uses stuff. I want to tell a Muppet story that's a bit more dramatic and heavy. I think there's a way to blend those things together. I'd love to do that. I have regrettably sort of shelved my want to tell a Star Wars story because I've seen Andor and uh, it, it humbled me. Uh, I, I thought I was, I thought I really got it. And then I saw that show and that bar is very high. And even if I had all the time in the world and a giant Disney budget, I'm not sure I could pull it off the way I want. Though if, if given a chance, I would do a story about smugglers because that's interesting to me. And it would involve zero nostalgia because Star Wars is a whole, like, galaxy. So uh, let's tell the whole galaxy story. But that's just me. On we go. Last question of the day. So many... I'm going to get a mouthful of water. I'm so sorry. Otherwise, you're going to hear me cough in the middle of this question. Hang on. So many writing rules exist because everyone's always done it that way. What's really stopping people from innovating? Fear. Straight up fear. So whether we're talking about passive voice or whether we're talking about interpreting a trope or whether we're writing about a genre expectation or the way a story is supposed to be or what should go into a query letter or how it should be, you know, crafted or whatever. You are, as the person making that thing, you are pushing against the weight of an entire industry that is generally hyper slow to change. Like it's, 2024 or 2023 it is the current year right we are still in some spaces having discussions about the the prevalence of electronic books they've been around for two decades plus like they're here they work why are we still talking about them there are still people who think that newsletters won't catch on there are still people who think that tiktok is a is a useful book publishing tool like there are loads of people very very slow to change so every time somebody's going to innovate they are pushing against the inertia and and the mass of everybody saying no nah, don't don't innovate we do it this way for a lot of writers um, they like the idea of being the innovator, but they lack the skill to be that innovator. Because if you're going to innovate, you have to have a higher quality thing to withstand the scrutiny and withstand the pressure and be that outlier. If you write poorly, you're not really seen as an innovator. You're seen as somebody who just writes poorly. Your craft needs to be strong. Your voice needs to be strong. Whatever it is you're doing whatever change you're making, whether it's querying or marketing or whatever, you need to do it in an incredibly skillful and decisive way. And a lot of people don't. They just think that doing something different is enough. But there's a difference between doing something different and doing something different well in a way that stands out, in a way that is remarkable. It's the mass of everybody else swimming downstream and you want to swim upstream that makes it hard to innovate because it's very slow to turn other people's minds around. Like 
What if we didn't use punctuation? What if we didn't use capital letters? Those would be bold innovations. People have been trying to do them for about 60 years. You know what happens? They get published and they get talked about in a, in sort of a, like these are the exception to the rule kind of way. But it never catches on enough to be more than an outlier. True innovation creates something more persistent than a, oh, by the way, there's also this thing off to the side. True innovation moves someone from the margins to the mainstream. And that requires not just courage, but skill, which means practice, which means confidence, which means faith, which means absolute, instead of absolute certainty that the tech bros of the world would tell you all you need to do is just, you know, go swing your genitals around and somehow somebody will respect that bro. You've got to, you've got to move with style. You've got to move decisively. You've got to know what you want to say and have the skill to confirm that what you are saying and the way you are saying it is unassailable. We can't, while we could find fault when we compare your innovative thing to the mainstream current ongoing thing, there is something about how well you have done it that we can't impeach. That's what makes it really hard to innovate. It isn't a matter of just taking a thing and, oh, I've, I've you know, added a robot dog. That's not an innovation. You've got to radically assess and challenge something and then do it well enough. That's what keeps people from innovating. And a lot of people are afraid to put in that time and effort. And a lot of people are afraid to discover that in the course of putting in that time and effort, they don't have the skill to actually do it. If more people got together and all collectively agreed, and then the skill in aggregate, rather the skill in specific was enough, like if a few thousand people got together and dominated the social media conversation about how TikTok is bullshit for publishing and a few thousand people were consistent in it and a few thousand people were, you know, evangelical in it for lack of a better word, then yeah, book talk would, would be diminished as a, as a resource for people to aspire to it. I don't think it would make traditional publishing stop throwing money at it because it's just a review outlet. Now it's, it's catering to a different kind of book influencer, Ugh. but it would a group effort can be more successful than an individual effort. It just means that a group of people have to get their shit together and really try. And there's a lot of fear and a lot of fear that doing this will doom them or prohibit them from, you know, acceptance. They'll always be rejected. They'll be blacklisted. And maybe so. I don't know. Nobody does. But if you really want to innovate, you've got to have skill to back up the thing you're saying which means practice your skill, really, really work on it. Ask questions, be decisive, challenge, think through things. Don't just slap stuff together on the page. It's hard to do, but I believe it is worth doing. Totally makes sense to be afraid, but you got to do stuff. Ah, here is a question. So let's move forward. We've got this question that's great. I actually want to put this up on the screen. Have you seen your taste and interest in genre, books, film, whatever, change much over time? Is there anything you think would surprise younger John? Yeah, totally. Totally. There's plenty of things 
that would uh, surprise me because absolutely my taste has changed over time, without a doubt. When I was younger, I really could not stand like deeply introspective pieces. I thought them too slow. I'd want not necessarily big action beats and explosions. That was never really my thing. But I'd want a better balance of the two, and I thought that um, things had to be more moderate. You couldn't lean into any one thing. So over time, my tastes have shifted hard from I only like this certain genre. I only like, you know, action comedies, or I only like um, screwball comedy or something, which are things I liked as a kid. I still like. I just... Having expanded to also like, you know, biograph, you know, biographic pictures, uh, thrillers, legal thrillers. Uh, I've expanded my comics reading past just Spider Man and uh, past Batman into loads of different other kinds of comics. Um, there was a moment. <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, but I realized that there's like a whole world of people, and they all have stories, like. There are stories from other countries. I, I know that sounds really obvious, but I grew up in this little isolated, very religious, very white privileged bubble where it was us and then the rest of the world are sinners and bad. So like they, they're, they're people, but they're not like us. And, and that sort of excluded, and we never really talked about like, hey, do you know, like, here's how Korean drama works, or oh, here's African mythology from this group or this group, or here's South American folklore or something. Like, other people had stories, but you regard them the same way you're like, oh, Thor in Norse mythology, I read the Avengers, I know what's up, and it's nothing like that at all. Or, you know... History was always a thing I had a passing interest in. And then over time, I got like way more into it when I started to see the value of it. As I've gotten older, I've, I've started to really consider finding the valuable material and stuff. It isn't enough to be like, oh, that was good. I want to know why it's good now. You know, why do I used to see a movie five, six times? I had more disposable income as a kid. You know, I had an allowance. I had fewer restrictions on my time, fewer responsibilities. So taking me to the movie theater as a kid was a no-brainer because it got me out of my parents' way. And I, I'd see a movie five, six times, and I'd, I'd laugh at all the jokes, and it'd just be a good day. Whereas now, I want to watch this movie, and I want to take it apart. Why does this make me laugh? Why does this movie consume my thoughts for a month afterwards? Why do I want to... What are the lessons from this thing? This this book, holy shit, I read this book. It's got me thinking all the time. How did it do that? Because it's just words. Which words? Why did it do that? Younger John didn't go very deep because younger John was scared of the depth. Younger John just wanted to be soothed and entertained. And which is fair. Younger John had a real fucked up existence. Older me, though realized that there's nobody really coming to soothe me as much as I want it. I got to go out and ask for it, solicit it or, or make a difficult thing happen in order to get some soothing. But what has, what I have learned to calm me 
satisfy me, etc., is being my own best teacher. I used to be very ashamed of the fact that I had trouble in school. I was a bright, brilliant student, but I had trouble in school because everybody was operating in like a different way, like different wavelengths. And, and I felt like I, I got this lesson in two minutes. What the fuck is everybody else doing? Why am I being ignored? Cause we got to go help those people figure shit out. It was kind of selfish. I know, but I, I had a terrible time like keeping up in school because I wanted to go faster. I wanted to do more. And as I got older and people had trouble teaching me because I'm, stubborn and cynical and fr easily frustrated I'm better off teaching myself I always am always have been and I used to hide that fact as a kid I used to just say I'm doing extra homework I'm studying more really I'm just teaching myself the material in a way that sticks in my head but as I got older I realized that's like my great tool like this is my mutant superpower it, should the X-Men ever come knocking on my door uh, this is what I can do uh, I can teach things and explain things. And in figuring that out and being okay with that over time, I began to appreciate so much more about art. And it became less scary. And I found that diving in and really like learning a thing and really being able to take it apart soothed me. Now, maybe it's not the most effective like, hey, John, you're good enough. Have some confidence soothing as somebody, you know, straight up telling me, hey, I'm good enough. But it certainly helps. My tastes have radically changed. And even as an adult, my tastes have changed. When I was using heavily and not sober for months at a time, uh, my tastes were very tame. I, I just wanted to have things in front of my face and not think too critically. And now, now I want to be critical. Now I want to chew on stuff. I want stuff... I know what I, I know now I can say no to a thing. And I think that would surprise the hell out of younger me because I remember being younger and being in the library or being at the bookstore and feeling like whatever somebody said, oh, John, you'll like this, I had to say yes to because I didn't want to upset them. Whereas now, if not that I'm ever at the bookstore with other humans, but if, if other people recommend me a thing, I know the difference now between, oh, thanks so much, that's a great suggestion, and oh, holy shit, I'm going to get this book. So yes, uh, I have absolutely evolved my taste and interest over time. I think, every, I think every creative goes through that. I used to think art, like painting, was dumb because I didn't, I didn't know how to, how to like, deal with it. I thought it was very boring. I was just going to stare at something. I didn't get it. And then over time, as I learned about like what it takes to make those things, and I've saw I've seen people like try. I see a lot in that. Uh, I didn't value a lot of that stuff, and uh, over time, I have learned to. It hasn't made me less of like a pain in the ass. I'm still really critical. I still have a lot of questions. I still poke things with a lot of sticks, but I I'm certainly more. Conscious is the word I would use. I am more conscious of how I interpret and digest art. I also read less Batman. That would definitely surprise younger me. Younger me, the first two comic books I would always read out of my pile every week were Batman and Wolverine. 
And over time, uh, I realized that Wolverine is always the same story, uh, just with different bad guys plugged in. It's always, I have to do a terrible thing. I'm going to have to fight my way out. Oh, the burden of my metal body. I'm going to lose my metal. I'm going to get my metal back. I'm going to get amnesia. I'm going to get my memory back. It's the same thing over and over. And Batman is the worst villain in every Batman book because he's a uncritical rich person who assumes he knows best and figures that violence will solve all his problems because people would rather dress up as a bat vigilante than go to therapy. I, I stopped pretty much reading Batman after Gotham city was leveled by an earthquake. Uh, no man's land. The last arc I really remember in Batman and then I would tune in and, and like catch snippets here and there. I know the Bat family is much bigger now. Um, I could not. It would take effort for me to sit down and be like, I'm going to study Batman. Yeah, my tastes have totally changed. Younger John would be like, what? Batman? We like Batman. Yeah, we've since moved on. We, we, we look for different things now. So what a great question that was. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to continue to put water in my face. Are there any other questions? Else, we will get out of here. Anything else? Else, we will go to the outro. All right, off we go to the outro. As apparently there's like a major, I, I don't know if you can tell, but there's like a billion fire trucks and, and ambulances blaring behind me. I wonder what's going on. Anyway, to the outro. I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for listening to this. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for letting me talk at length about Batman and my love of jukebox musical. Thanks for letting me talk about the passive voice and publishing and fear and innovation. Uh, this one really meant a lot to me. Thank you so much. Um, all power to all people. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your time. The next time I'm here, I, I do want to point this out. We'll be later this week. I will be right back here in your eyes and in your ears on Thursday, August the 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern to talk. I don't have a graphic for it yet. To talk all about building a better fantasy story, whether that's high fantasy, urban fantasy, or whatever. Uh, I'm going to take a look at some fantasy subgenres and some constructions and give you some new tools for your toolbox. That's this Thursday, August the 24th. 7 p.m. Eastern right here on twitch.tv slash John If you like this, oh, by the way, the next writer's chat, just so that we're clear, will be next Tuesday, uh, which is August the 29th. It's the end of the month. Holy shit. Uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for being here. If you like this, if this really meant the world to you, uh, and you want to throw a couple bucks my way to support everything I do, go over to patreon.com slash John Helps You Write Better. Each and every week, you'll get a ton of stuff free in your inbox for as little as $2 a month. All right, let's get out of here. Time to go, I guess, back to work. I got more stuff to do. Thanks for being here. We'll talk very, 
very soon. See ya!